Hello, we're Project Six and we're a charity working with people in South and West Yorkshire. We deliver a range of services to support people with alcohol and other drug use to help individuals, families and communities to make meaningful and sustainable change in their well-being. And you're listening to our podcast. So the purpose of this, we wanted to share some ideas and different viewpoints and how we can improve drug and alcohol support, work that's already taking place, and what the future could look like. And especially how we can challenge and even dismantle the stigma and discrimination associated with problematic alcohol and drug use. Why? Because that's what the people who come to our service say is what matters to them. This time we spoke again to Dr David Patton. He'd recently returned from the UN's Commission on Narcotic Drugs, where he was presenting his paper on tackling stigma in treatment and recovery. He talks about challenging some of the traditional ideas about stigma and what the strengths of recovery culture can help teach society about other issues we all face. Yeah, whenever we think about kind of or talk about the issue of stigma in the drug addiction kind of recovery community, we're very much aware that it's a negative thing and it's such a significant challenge that people in recovery have to overcome in many different kind of forms. But for for me, too much airtime is given to all of the negatives. Isn't it a problem? Yes, it is a problem. We know it's a problem. So what are we going to do about it? That that to me is is my focus in, in the work that I do. So in the paper at the United Nations, I decided not to repeat all of the problems and all of the stats, but actually I wanted to cultivate a paper that spoke to people in recovery that was a strengths-based approach. And I started with um, a quote from Tony Morrison, who very powerfully and insightfully said, I stood at the edge, I stood at the border, and I commanded the rest of the world to move over to the center of where I was. And I think too often in the recovery community, we seemingly go out with a begging bowl to people in perceived positions of power saying, will you include us? Will you include our voice? And I think that that's an upside down approach. Actually, what the research shows is that those in recovery have higher levels of quality of life, higher levels of well-being, and also they report that once they're in stable recovery, that would be five years plus, that their lives are now far better than they ever imagined they could be. And moreover, their lives are now better than the life that they had pre-addiction. So if what we're saying is that what people have in recovery is somehow, or on some levels with some metrics, showing that they are they, their quality of life is better than those in the general population, surely there's something distinctive about the lifestyles and the practices of those in recovery that they are somehow the leaders. They've got something that works beyond the general practices of society. And that really links in beautifully, I think, with the Toni Morrison quote, that actually those in recovery are at the centre. They're not on the edge. They're not on the margins. They're not excluded. That they have a sense of uh, community, a sense of identity, a sense of purpose and meaningful and fulfilment that other people don't have. And that, that is the heart of what it means to have a fulfilled life. 
and a successful life. And that is the center. That's what everyone's striving for in society. And those in, in recovery are practicing that. In all of the work that I do, it centers around this notion of recovery capital. And recovery capital is thought to be made up of personal capital, social capital, and community capital. So I really spoke about the need to, when we think about stigma, so often what has occurred is that we have these individualized notions of stigma. So whenever you look up a traditional dictionary definition, it would state something that uh, an, an individual has been marked or stained uh, with something that then results in them facing exclusion. Uh, and I was, as I was reflecting on this, there was no um, structural or societal kind of acknowledgement of stigma. And so I was really advocating it in the paper that actually we really need to redefine stigma to one that acknowledges that, that stigma is a tool of those in power and it is utilized as a tool for the purposes of exclusion and marginalization. And once you take on that lens, you realize that the problem is not with the individuals in society who possess certain characteristics, but rather with the needs, the polluted and corrupted needs of those in power. Because why do they feel this need to oppress or exclude or marginalize certain groups of people? That's the real issue. Coming back to linking that kind of redefinition of stigma to kind of personal capital and overcoming stigma at the personal level. A lot of what is shared in the recovery kind of community is people telling their stories and people find that really empowering to do so. And it's one of the key uh, mechanisms by which, you know, we can celebrate recovery and make it visible. But what I've heard time and time again, going back to this kind of more macro definition of stigma is that you hear this voice of to use a bit of a metaphor, the oppressor or the, or the dominator, those in power, and their lens and their kind of uh, judgments or criticisms, if you like, of that individual seeping into the retelling of the story. So one quick example would be that people would typically uh, talk about being clean or not clean. And, and I just kind of, I query where has that sense come from? Was somebody not clean before who said they weren't clean? And when we think about who that person is, <laughs> we realize it's not the individual, but actually it's the voice within society, this kind of you know metaphorical voice, if you like, of the oppressor or, or the dominator. So I was encouraging people to go back through their story, to be authentic to what's occurred. So not to put on a Hollywood gloss, you know, to, to say about the, the pains and the hardships that they've experienced, but to have a pure story without the voice of the oppressor and, and, and how would the story be different if it could be retold from that point of view. And I think one of the benefits that uh, I'm trying to cultivate there is a sense of agency that you own stand in the power of your story minus uh, the inclusion of the voice of the oppressor. And I think the story will change and it becomes your story rather than actually a reproduction of the, the um, oppressor's uh, story. Uh, second takeaway was around um, kind of social capital. And it's really hard, I think, that when you're kind of trying to turn your life around and you're still facing barriers and exclusion and, and stigma, those things are real. People can often feel kind of discouraged. Maya Angelou said, you come as one, 
but you stand as 10,000. And so there are people who've gone before you who've had, unfortunately, the same experiences and they've hoped they've overcome. There'll be people that will come after you and, you know, they may unfortunately still have the same experience, the same barrier placed in front of them. But because of your actions today and your overcoming, that they too will overcome. And there's a sense of social solidarity within the recovery community. You are not alone, you are supported. And that social connectedness is a key superpower that you possess that not everybody in society has. So, you know, a few years back now, we've got our first minister for loneliness uh, because we're acknowledging that a lot of people in society don't have even one or two good, uh, solid, positive social connections that they are so alienated. And those in recovery don't have that experience of loneliness, quite the opposite. And so you come as one, but you definitely stand as 10,000. People's understandings or the narratives of, of those stories change over that time. Is there anything? Yeah. I mean, I think that one of the key processes that's occurring in order for that change to occur is that um, oftentimes using their words, not mine, I wouldn't subscribe to this language, but there's a replacement for this um, addict or spoiled sense of identity Um versus the new legitimate senses of identities and roles that they now occupy. So there's that identity change and transformation. So it's not just behavioral change that's occurred during that five-year period. It's a sense of identity change that I am no longer engaged in those forms of behaviors and those activities that now my identities are as employer, homeowner, father, mother, contributor to society so on and so forth so they now inhabit a range of legitimate roles and identity forms that have replaced those old more subcultural forms of identity i guess you might say and you, i suppose then you see how it's significant when you don't have many other positive identities around you how the the perceived negativity of, of some of the labels that people yes take on be, become so debilitating in some absolutely yeah and, and labeling is a huge part of it and if we just use a little bit of a, of a metaphor thinking about education so the child um who is told both verbally or you know non-verbally through test scores or other kind of uh, metrics or mechanisms the the set that they're placed in in school and and certainly for myself uh during my secondary education i was in the first year of uh, secondary school in the bottom set for everything and so that message was very clear that I was um, stupid. I wasn't uh, academic. I wasn't intelligent. And, and so I, I now find it like really hysterical that, you know, I'm Dr. David Patton. I've got a first class honours degree and so on and so forth. But that wasn't always my identity form. I remember once when I was in the bottom set for English, uh, my class weren't allowed to study Shakespeare, even though all of my friends and uh, people in my year group were studying Shakespeare. We studied boys from the black stuff which for any that might be too old an example for some people, but essentially it was a TV series and a, and a play about some working class males who didn't achieve in the education system. So they were involved in the construction industry and they were continually looking for work. And so the message that I took from that was that I wasn't clever enough to, to study or read Shakespeare. I wouldn't understand it, but I was clever enough to read Boys from the Black Stuff, which was a story about... Um, a group of working class kind of boys, men, young men actually, kind of joking around on building sites. And if we zoom out from the individual 
how far can we keep zooming to really where, where do you feel that it, it really sits my definition of recovery one of the things that grates me as well is that similar to stigma that um recovery is often described as individualized long-term dynamic nuanced process of change from addiction to abstinence or you know controlled use and uh, participation well-being all that other stuff but again it, the 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 emphasis is too much on the individual it, it, you've got to have that kind of broader macro structural understanding of what is causing subsets of the general population to fall into addiction pathways and for me the there are things around um, imperialism colonialism uh, capitalism neoliberalism so on and so forth that cause um, unhelpful unhealthy uh, paradigms perspectives lifestyle practices that mean that lives are devoid of meaning and purpose and connection and and um, support and shared kind of uh, responsibility and accountability to each other. So we're living in a society that um, doesn't do those positive, healthy things. And so thinking about Bruce Alexander's work around dislocation theory, a lot of that, in his view, and, and I would agree, that the reason why a lot of people fall into addiction pathways is because of those macro structural uh, paradigms and, and practices, rather than you've got Johnny Briggs, who because of his childhood circumstances, um, therefore led to negative behaviours, which then led on to addiction and drug use. I, I would see it much more on a macro lens. And yeah, and, and one of my hopes through the work that I do is that we begin to shift our understandings of the reasons for entry into drug consumption and drug addiction onto those more macro uh, understandings. The challenging stigma on a, on a more structural level, how does that happen or how do you see that change happening? What I'm trying to advocate through my research and through that voice is to show that there's something distinctive about those in recovery and the practices and the cult, more importantly, the culture of recovery is the antidote to a lot of the societal ills. And I think we all collectively in recovery, working in recovery, researching in recovery, uh, being you know an advocate in recovery, how are we showcasing that what we have works and how what is going on in society is not working? Because that is one key way of challenging the stigma. <laughs> we are at the centre, going back to Tony Morrison, we are the leaders, we are the knowledge leaders. And so it completely flips things on its head because we're then in possession of the knowledge that, of, of around what's working. And so I think that's one key way in which we can challenge the stigma at the policy level. Um, and I think the other way um, is really in every meeting, in every kind of um, funding opportunity, whatever the scenarios are that we find ourselves in, whatever tables we're in, is calling it out to change the emphasis from the individual facing the stigma to the macro-structural uh, emphasis of those in power who, you know, this is a form of structural violence, which is man-made. The unequal life outcomes that certain sectors of our population, general population, experience are not general expect uh, experiences of all in society. So why have these groups and the, these people with these characteristics been singled out? That this is a man-made story 
and that story can be changed, it can be unwritten, we can write a new story. Um, and that's what we need to do. We need to call it out and start writing the new story. That's it for this episode. Thanks to Dr. David Patton. Just before we go, the last few tickets to the Project 6 Ideas Conference are still on sale. If you were planning on joining us and you don't want to miss out, make sure you book your place. And if you've not heard about this year's conference, head to project6.org.uk slash conference for all the details. That's it, and thanks for listening. Thank you.